what I'm about to say. Hey. I thought you were starting. Oh. <laughs> hey, this is Shelby. And this is Courtney. And thanks for joining us today on All Things Macabre. Here on All Things Macabre, we discuss all the things under the topic of odd, weird, true crime, supernatural, and fiction. This podcast contains language and content that is not suitable for all listeners, so listener discretion is advised. If you find a topic we are discussing interesting, we encourage you to do some research on your own. You never know what you may learn. We are just a couple of old friends telling each other stories that we find interesting. And hoping that you'll enjoy and laugh along with us. Through some stories that are weird, true, or fictional that will just make you say, what the fuck? And now, for the fun part. Hey, Macabre Mob, it's Shelby. And Courtney. And we're going to just go ahead and do a short little recap and jump right into part two of Judith Ann Neely. So, you remember they met in 1979, Mm -hmm. summer 1979. She was 15, he was 26. July 14th, 1980, they got married. October 31st, 1980, Judith mugged a female victim with a gun. Mm -hmm. So, armed robbery. November 10th, 1981, arrested for theft and the 15 counts of forgery. November 12th, twins the two days after she got into the Rome YDC. And I did actually find out both of their names. It is April and Jeremy. So those those were the twins' names. November 1981, Judith was released from custody. That's when she went and lived with Alvin's parents. And then Alvin was shortly released after that. September 11th, 1982, Ken Dooley's home was shot at four times through the, you remember the drive-by shooting? And then just right after that, there was the firebombing at Linda Adair's house. Yes. I forgot about Linda's, we guess. I remember now. And a lot happened. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say that's kind of a short recap, but that that's really a short recap. (laughs) But I think you had said to me before we started recording, you were keeping it short due to the fact of what we're about to get into is packed with a yes. lot of information. So you kind of had to yes. give it a short recap. So I will say if the short recap wasn't enough, then go back and listen to the part one. Yeah, it's, uh, it's expanded out about a good hour for you. So you can really get the understanding of this, this couple here, Boney and Claude. <laughs> I forgot about that. <laughs> well, after escalating to the shooting and the firebombing in early September, Alvin and Judith had started to develop their plans even more and started look- looking for a young girl that they could kidnap and use as they wished. I'm sure you can get where that's going. Excuse me, what? Yeah, so it escalated. Very. It's, that's why I had to cut it off last week. <laughs> yeah. What? So, Judith actually started walking up to the girls that she would see around town in Rome. Oh, my God. And she would try to engage in conversation with them. Because she's like 15, so she's close to the She's young. Ages, she's right? about, I think she's 16 here. Oh, 15, 16. Okay. So, in middle to late September, she came up to a girl near Magic Market, which was a neighborhood convenience store, kind of just a small hometown type thing. And she said, are you Phyllis? The girl shook her head no, and Judith asked how old she was, and she was 13. Then she asked if she wanted to go for a ride. The girl told her no. Judith said, well, I can take you anywhere. And the girl said, no, I'm just on my way home, and she safely walked home. Good for the girl. I was scared. But. Oh, no. Not much later, Judith went to the Red Diamond food store in West Rome and saw a girl that just got a newspaper from a vending machine. You remember the old newspaper? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually forgot about those until I saw that. And I was like, oh, they did have those. Actually, sorry to interrupt you for just a brief second. The store that you passed to get to my house, 
I'm not going to say any names because I don't want to try and yeah. where I live at, but you can get where I'm talking about. They actually still have a working one. Yeah, there's actually a couple around town here, but they're they're still rare. People don't really use them. They're usually empty whenever I see them. So as this lady started coming back across the parking lot, Judith asked if she was Phyllis. The girl was like, no, that, that's not my name. And Judith asked what her name was. Why is she picking the name Phyllis? I don't know. Like, who the fuck is Phyllis? I don't know. <laughs> So, the girl said that her name was Dorothy, and they just kind of stared at each other in silence for a moment, and then Dorothy excused herself and kind of hurried away safely. So, this is strike two. Okay, I'm just saying, if you're gonna do this, have the balls to actually follow through, and then also, Judith, pick a better name than fucking Phyllis. I'm sorry to, like, shit on all you Phyllises who was out there listening, but Phyllis... This is in 1980. I know you don't listen to the, or listen, but I know you haven't ever watched The Office, but no. there's a character on there. Her name is Phyllis, and she goes on my last fucking nerve. <laughs> anyway, proceed. So, later on, Judith went to the arcade, Aladdin's Castle, which was in the entrance of the Riverbend Mall in West Rome. She saw a lady playing a game, and she asked if she was Kim. So, she did switch the name up this time. Okay. Suzanne shook her head and said, no, my name's Suzanne. Then Judith asked if she was from around there. Suzanne said she was from Armucci, which I've never heard of, but I think I said that right. And this is in Georgia, right? Yes. Which Armucci? Armucci, which Judith said she was from too. I'm going to look this up while you're talking. So Suzanne was like, you do? Where? Because it was kind of a small area. Mm Mm-hmm. Judith looked really confused, so Suzanne was like, well, it is a small place, so you know if you live anywhere around Max's trailer park. Judith answered no, and quickly she changed the subject, asking if Suzanne was alone. That's kind of weird. But luckily, Suzanne said no, she was with her husband. Judith came back with, I was just passing through and called a friend of mine to meet me here at the mall, but she hasn't come by yet. Suzanne didn't really say anything, just kind of let the conversation fizzle out. And Judith was like, well, I guess I'll let you go on and uh, play a game. And she walked off, but not without Suzanne noticing her appearance. She had a white t-shirt on with a big rebel flag, which you already know how I feel about that. Mm-hmm. It's like this huge... <laughs> I'm picturing... Yeah, you know, all over the freaking yeah. front of the shirt. I can't think of the brand of what they used to be. Dixie were... Outfitters. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's yeah. What yes, that's yeah. what I'm picturing in my head. And she had on some faded blue jeans. She looked, looked really dirty and unkempt, kind of like she hadn't bathed in a while. She had no makeup on, tangled, long, reddish-brown hair that went down to her shoulders, and she wasn't wearing a bra. I thought it was funny. I had to include that because it was included. So... She just, like, rolled out of bed looking like trash type shit. And trying to go ki- kidnap a kid. Yeah. By the way, it's pronounced Armurchie. Armurchie. Hmm. Okay. Even though there's no R right here, but it's Armurchie. It's both in Chattanooga and Floyd County, Georgia. Okay. The more you know. The more you know. So, even later, the same day, around 6 p.m., September 25th, 1982, a house parent carrying six girls from the Ethel Harpst home, a home for neglected girls, pulled up to the mall. The house parent took the youngest shopping with her and told the other five girls to stay together and they would meet up in one hour at Radio Shack. When about 7 o'clock rolled around, they were supposed to meet up. Lisa Ann Milliken was missing. The group said she had gotten separated from them. They tried to find her, but they couldn't find her. The house parrot, Miss Henderson, divided the girls in half and sent the two teams to look through the mall for Lisa. Twenty minutes later, they all ended up coming back to the same spot. No one had any signs of Lisa. Miss Henderson called mall security, who also had several officers search the mall. It came up empty-handed as well. So then, one of them told her that she should call the police. So, of course, she did. And that led to them coming to search the mall as well, but obviously empty-handed. They decided to put out a missing persons bulletin to all the officers about her. So Lisa was born March 18th, 1969. She was only 13 years old at this time. She was from Cedartown, Georgia, but she was actually picked up by a lady one day whenever she was just walking down the street in the summer of 1981. 
Lisa was really upset and told the lady about how her dad had been putting his greasy hands up her and gave her an infection. Oh, no. And at first, I was thinking greasy hands, like, working on a car or uh-huh. something. Yeah. There's more. Oh, no. And that she had also been made to wipe the same grease from her dad's crotch. That helped me understand what she was talking about there. I think I'm going to Unfortunately. So, obviously, the lady that picked her up called DCS. Ooh. And, of course, they were investigated. The mom denied everything. Of course she did. But later on, she actually confessed about the sexual abuse. <sighs> Lisa had also told DCS that her dad had forced her and her mom to go to bed with him. And sometimes he would make them get naked as well. Well, you get the idea. So, I'm going to make this real brief and easy on all of us. He never actually stuck his junk in her, but he pretty much did everything else. I like how you phrased <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, anyway, she had only been at this home for girls for a few weeks, that I believe. Like, at one time, before she was taken out of her home, she was actually living in the car with her mom and sisters. So, I mean, she didn't have the best childhood. A lot of people that knew her said that she was promiscuous. I mean... Oh, okay. It's a bad childhood. I mean, I, was gonna I, I say, can understand. She's sexually reactive because of trauma. I'll leave that where that is, and I'm not going to get on the soapbox today. But but don't victim blame. Exactly. That's where I was going at with this. It's it's still one of those situations. It doesn't matter what she did. What she, matters is that her life ended. She in was a, a child. Anyway, continue. So, Judith and Alvin took Lisa to the Chattahoochee Motel in Franklin, Georgia. That makes me think of, uh, what's his name? Alan Jackson. <laughs> Way down yonder on the Chattahoochee. <laughs> <laughs> it gets hotter than the hoochie coochie. <laughs> <laughs> well, they rented a room for the night, and then they ended up taking her to the Five Points Motel in Scottsboro, Alabama for the next two nights. Witnesses there... I believe it was the two that were working that night, said that the room was occupied by a large man, a woman, a girl, and two small children. We didn't forget they had the twins, did you? I was going to say, who the fuck are these kids? Yeah. Oh, God, I forgot about the twins. Don't forget the twins were there. So they were there while they kidnapped Lisa. Oh, that's great. And all this bullshit. They've already gone to one motel. You can already imagine what's going on. Oh, my God. They're at another motel for another couple days. You already know what's going on. So... These poor kids, including Lisa. Yeah. Like, Lisa and the twins, which, I mean, Tendick, I I don't, I have mixed emotions about Judith. I don't, I don't know. At some point, she stopped caring about herself and started just spiraling. Yes. Like, I I don't think Alvin was any good for her from the get-go. Childhood, and when I say childhood for her, I mean, like, before Alvin inserted himself at the situation. I feel sorry for Judith, but... Majority from Alvin on, I feel like she could make her own decisions, but it's still complicating to think of because, you know, she's still groomed to do it, but then again, she's also making some of these decisions by her own volition, so... You're not the only one that thinks that. It's complicated. That that is one of the things in this case that's got it so twisted, because no one really knows, and... You'll you'll see. You'll see. It's no, just fucked I'll up. I'll keep that to the end. It's fucked up. Sorry. I keep interrupting you. We're never going to get done if I keep interrupting you. <laughs> so at the Five Points Motel in Scottsboro, Alabama, whenever they checked out, the owner actually went to go clean the room after they checked out. He noticed that only one bed had been used, but there were two beds in the room. Excuse me, what? So there was a man, one, two, a woman, three. a girl, and two small so children. Ki- no. No, yeah, five, yeah. Or five people, sorry. Five people. And, one and only bed- one bed was used. Yeah. Oh, 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 okay. So later on in an interrogation, Judith actually claimed that she offered Lisa a ride because they had been talking at the mall, and Lisa told Judith that she was from the Harps home and she didn't like it there. They had actually punished her more severely than the other girls, and she didn't want to go back. I don't know if that's true or not. That's what Judith is saying. She could have been a runaway with everything going on in her life. It's possible. But for three days... We were not there, so we don't know what was it. For For those three days, she was handcuffed in motel rooms, handcuffed in the cars they traveled, 
raped, beaten, tortured, and then she was driven up the mountain toward the canyon. Lisa was told to get out of the car, and she was going to be put to sleep so that they could get away and she wouldn't know where they were going and they wouldn't get caught. Oh no. Unfortunately, this was not the plan that Judith actually had in mind. I didn't think so. So you remember they spent some time in prison. They learned how to break into P.O. boxes and all that, right? Yeah, I forgot about that until you just reminded me, but yes. Well, while Alvin was in prison, he learned an untraceable way to kill people. Uh And that was by injecting drain cleaner into someone with a syringe. Oh my god. Lisa went and laid on the ground at the edge of the canyon like Judith had told her to. And she injected her with liquid Drano in her neck. Oh, in her neck? In her neck. The side of her neck. Ah, no, no, no. Okay, can we stop the story now? (laughs) Oh my god. She screamed immediately as it burned. And drain cleaner is so caustic that it pretty much just turns your muscles and stuff into like a sludge. It burns like hell. Oh my god. Since it wasn't working, Judith grabbed the liquid plumber this time instead of the Drano and injected her on the other side of the neck, getting the same reaction, obviously. Oh, my God. And Judith then tried again in her left arm, her right arm, her right butt cheek, then her left. Oh, God. She suffered for half an hour, freezing cold, burning up, laying on the ground, moaning in pain, Her body was slowly being destroyed, just muscles turning into, like, jello shit. Like, yeah, like, oh. She begged Judith to take her back to the Harpstone, promising she wouldn't say anything. Poor baby. Judith told her she couldn't, and she made her stand at the edge of the canyon with her back towards Judith. She made her stand up? She made her stand up after this. Judith shot her in the back, expecting Lisa to fall forward over the canyon, but she actually fell backwards when she was shot. It did kill her, and as much as I hate to say it, I'm glad, because I know she was suffering. Yes. And I don't think there would have been any fixing that. I I don't know, I'm not a doctor, but especially after 30 minutes of it eating away at your tissues, I'm glad that she was finally put out of that pain. But I hate that any of this happened to her. Let me be clear on that. That was rough. Well, once she was shot and she fell backwards, Judith actually got on her knees to push Lisa's body over the edge. And in the process, of course, she got blood on her jeans. So she actually ended up having to change her jeans. She had some, I guess, in the car or whatever. She threw the jeans over the canyon. Thing is, when she pushed Lisa over the edge, the first time, her body actually landed on, like, a tree or root or something sticking out of the side of the canyon wall just a few feet down. So Judith actually had to, like, climb down there a little bit and push her again to get her to go to the bottom of the canyon. Oh, my God. And they just got back in the car and, with the kids still in the back seat, drove away. The they, kids? Yep. Judith threw, she had a towel that she threw the three syringes in. Threw them down there, threw her pants down there. Lisa was down there, and they just got in the car and left. Oh. Oh, oh my god. I was not mentally prepared for this. (laughs) This is a fucked up story. (laughs) Wait until you hear the end. I don't want to (laughs) know. Remember how you feel about this. Just, Just let me, let me tell you. Let me tell all of you. Remember how you feel about this lady right now. I have a feeling she's on... Do you care about her age? To an extent, but not... Or The reason why I do is due to, like I said, I was talking about the fact of her being impress, impressionable. Mm-hmm. Yes. But she's over there injecting this poor girl six times with different... Like I said... Cleaner. But then I said... Is that not She's also doing things decision? from her own volition, so she's choosing to do this. Okay. And knowing it's wrong, obviously. Oh, yeah. Okay. I want to make sure. So, oh, I'm not saying that so, what she did isn't wrong. How, how do you feel about her age playing into factor, really? I don't know. That's a hard question to a- answer. That's a hard question for a lot of people on this. It's very, very hard. Very hard. I have a feeling the death penalty is, about to, is going to be brought up in this conversation eventually. Personally, I don't care if you're 16, 17, if you're this evil. I don't think you're going to just be rehabilitated and change. Oh, God, no. 
So I don't think personally the age factors into this. I've seen 13-year-olds, 9-year-olds, 10-year-olds kill someone and they're the coldest people you'll ever meet. And they will be locked away for the rest of their lives. I feel like she falls in that category. Personally. I'll save my opinions for the end of this. So on the afternoon of September 28th, nearly 1 p.m., the Rome police headquarters got a call saying, Uh, yes. Y'all looking for Lisa Ann Milliken on the run from Harp's home? I can tell you where she is. Go up to Little River Canyon in Alabama. Just as you cross Little River Canyon Bridge, turn to the left. Go up into the National Park. You'll see on the left some uh, picnic tables and a big rock parking area. And look off the side of the canyon where the power line is going across it. And look straight down the canyon. You'll find where I left her. And then the caller hung up. You'll find where I left her. So after the caller hung up, the cops actually decided this didn't really sound like something that was just bullshit. Mm -hmm. So they sent a couple of patrol cops out to go try to find the caller. Mm -hmm. At the same time, another officer decided to listen to the tape again, and he called DeKalb County to let them know about the call. Because she's not calling where she left the body. She's calling a different county. Huh. But why are you calling? It makes it seem like she wants to get caught. That's what I was going to say. She's seeking that recognition and that the... She called after the shooting. She called after the firebombing. Mm-hmm. And now she's calling after a murder. Come on. October 3rd, 1982. Judith walked up to a lady and said, Don't I know you? Are you Patricia Alexander? But the lady replied, No, I'm not. My name's Diane. Judith said she was just riding around and saw her and thought she might want to go riding around, but what? Diane told her no. She wasn't that person that she thought she was. She, she wasn't this Patricia Alexander, she thought. Judith said, well, I'm just out riding around. Maybe you'd like to go riding around with me. What part of no don't you understand? Kind of lonely right now. I don't have nobody to talk to. Not my problem. Mm-hmm. But Diane said, I'd like to, but I can't. I have to go to work. So Judith quickly was like, oh, I'll take you, I'll take you. Diane firmly said no and said that she was waiting on her husband to pick her up to take her to work. Judith just kept pushing, insisting she really wanted to take her. Luckily, Diane continued to say no. She just ran out of gas up the road. She was waiting on her husband to get there so she could tell him where the truck is to go get it. Judith walked over to her brown Dodge where Diane could see a small kid in the car. A few minutes later, Diane's husband got there, and and they left. She told him all about the strange woman and trying to go riding with her, but he was just like, oh, you know, whatever. It it was strange, but we're good, you know, we're, we're away from her. Later that day, a cemetery worker, 26-year-old John William Hancock, and 22-year-old, I know, right, John Hancock, (laughs) And 22-year-old Janice K. Chapman were walking down Shorter Avenue towards their home on Pike Street in Rome. They had been living together for a year and a half and would often go on walks or ride around town to get out of the house. So, little side note in this, a lot of people say that they were celebrating their engagement, they had just gotten engaged, they were living in common-law marriage. The more I looked into their story, I actually think that Janice had a mental retardation, and I think he was just trying to care for her. And that that gets talked about a little bit on here. But I don't think they were actually in a relationship. Okay. So more or less it was neighbors being nosy and trying to put a story together to make... Maybe. Maybe. I mean, you know, a guy and a girl can't be friends unless they're doing something. Eh. So as they were walking down the street, he saw some nuts and bolts laying on the ground that were in good condition, so he bent down to pick them up. I get it. That's the same shit I'd do. When he stood back up, he noticed that a car had pulled up beside Janice, and she was talking to a woman in the car. He noticed the license plate was out of state, maybe Tennessee or Kentucky or something. But as he got closer, he heard the woman in the car say, I'm from out of town, and I'm sort of lonely. This makes me sick. She is 
playing with people's emotions, trying to get them to feel sorry for her so she can attack them. Mm-hmm. That is so fucked up. Over their time together, John had noticed that Janice didn't always think about things and make good decisions. She was very impulsive. Yes. She had actually been badly used through a lot of her life. She often had been picked up by strangers like men that would do whatever. And then they would take her for hours later and just let her out whenever they were done. They wouldn't take her back to the house or back towards town or whatever. They would just be like, all right, I'm done. Bye. Kick her out. Damn. She walked home, I don't know how many times, like blisters on her feet and shit. Ridiculous. This was part of the reason that he asked her to move in with him. So he could keep a better eye after her. So I see it. And after really reading their story, I get it more and more. I get it. So when John came up to the car, he actually noticed that there was a Cobra CB radio mounted in the floorboard. He happened to know a little bit about CB radios. Judith said, I was just riding around. I was hoping you might want to ride around for a while, too. So he butted in. He said, nah, you know, we're just walking home. And immediately, Judith jumped in offering them a ride. Of course. He told her, you know, thanks, but we don't need a ride. We only live like three blocks down the road. And Judith came back with, man, I wish you'd ride around with me. I'm new in town. Like I said, I don't have nobody to talk to. And he looked over at Janice, who was grinning. And he was like, well... I guess it'll make her happy. So he shrugged, thinking maybe it'll be fun for her to go ride around a little bit. So we'll go ride around. I'll go with her so we can be safe. And I had to throw this in there because this this gets people all the time. They mix up what's going on with their religion with what's going on in the world instead of seeing separately. Mm -hmm. He had recently become a Christian and thought it was a good time to be a good Samaritan and to help Judith by giving her company. So he said, okay, I guess. And they got in the back seat. Instead of ignoring, or instead of, he ignored his gut instead of. Being a Christian doesn't mean you get in a car with a stranger because they say they're lonely. Okay. You don't do that. That that has nothing to do with being a Christian, being a good Samaritan. That's just dangerous. As they started off, John introduced himself and Janice. And then Judith actually passed the street they lived on and said that she had to go to her aunt's to get money for gas. I'd be like, well, bitch, just pull over and let me out. Yeah. <laughs> so John told her, you know, like, hey, I'd, I'd pay for gas, but I don't have any money on me at the moment. Judith didn't seem to care. She just picked up the CB radio and said 1036. 1036 is asking what time it is. John knew this. He happened to know a pretty good bit about CB radios. So the answer came through, followed by Judith asking who it was that answered her. He went by the handle. Night Rider. Then he asked who she was, and she answered, Lady Sundown. This is where some people get the killer Lady Sundown. I don't think she, I'm... she's known as a couple of things. But oh, okay. Did not know that. She asked Night Rider for his 1020, which 1020 is your location. Mm-hmm. And he said he was at Dunkin' Donuts, which was a good five minute drive from where they were. The only problem with that is John noticed that they were on channel 40, and that's a really, really weak channel. It doesn't broadcast very far. So knowing this, he knew that the car had to be within just a few car lengths away. Instead of being five minutes away. Yeah. She's talking to... Alvin. Oh my god. Yes. I mean, that's, that's terrifying. You know something's going on. But now you're stuck in the car. Obviously, the woman that's with you is not figuring anything out that's going on. You're fucked. This would be me and you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You remember whenever I said that, oh, I wouldn't put myself in those positions, and then I start thinking about it? (laughs) See, we could be in these positions. I I can think I'm smarter than others, but I'm not. So as the two talked on the CB for a while, they decided to meet at Old Cusa Post Office north of Rome, and Knight Rider told her to pull off onto a narrow dirt road on her right. She told them as she got out that she was going to meet him and she'd be back. I'm talking Janice and John. Yeah, Like, yeah. hey, you know, y'all stay here. I'm going to go meet him real quick. I was going to say, right I love back. how she just arranged to do this whole, like, mm-hmm. 
link up with this dude randomly and yeah. doesn't even tell nobody even though originally we were supposed to be going on to our aunt's house to go get money yeah be- because i'm lonely and i need someone to ride around with fuck off yes after a little while she came back to the car and said that night rider wanted to meet them so they got out of the car and they walked over to his john introduced himself as fortune teller and janice as lady rose that was their own CB handles. Okay. So, see? He knows a little yeah. bit about CBs. Judith got the kids out of the back seat of Alvin's car and put them in hers. Alvin claimed that he was babysitting his brother kids and that the lady that just took the kids into the other car looked a lot like his brother's wife. Looked a lot? What? So you mean to tell me that you're going to babysit your brother's kids and then just be like, oh, this strange lady I just met looks just like your wife. I'm going to let them go with her. What the fuck? I could see. I would never fall for that. I was going to say, I could see one day (laughs) you guys asking me to babysit Jaden or watch him or something and me be like, yeah, I, me and him were out at Walmart or something and I saw this person, I swear, looked to me just like Tina and... She said, hey, Jaden, you want to come home with me? And I was just like, yeah, you look like Tina. You look enough like her, you know, so. Hey, yeah, thank you. Go ahead. Yeah, so I, I mean, just I'm just saying, just as Janice and. What the fuck? John, like, I would just be like, no, the fuck is going on here? You're just going to let them take your she brother's She sort of looks like my sister-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, at this point. The kids are in the back seat of Judith's car. These poor kids. Janice had already gotten back in the car with Judith. So John was kind of left with no other option. He could either get into the car with Alvin or nothing. So, he got in the car with Alvin. Oh my god. After a ways, you know, Knight Rider and Lady Sundown were doing their CB banter back and forth. And the whole fake, I think I may have met you at a party once, bullshit, and talking about drinking and whatever of the CB. Alvin asked if the children were asleep, and looked really pleased whenever she told him that they were. My little toolbox just fell. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Sorry, proceed. (laughs) (laughs) Just a little further down the road, John told Alvin that he had to take a piss. So Alvin was like, well, I do too. So they told Lady Sundown that they had to use the bathroom and to pull over behind them and cut her lights off so no one would see them. Obviously, indecent exposure, whatever. This whole thing is just weird. It is very sketchy. After they stopped, Alvin went straight back to the other car, and John was like, that's kind of weird, he said he had to piss too, like, I'm over here pissing, and he just went straight back over to the other car. So John was like, oh, whatever, you know, just focused on what he was doing, and then all of a sudden he heard him say, if we're gonna do it, let's do it. Let's get it over with. Oh my god. And then Judith approached John with a gun in hand and told him to walk down the road with his back towards her. After making him walk a ways, she told him to stop. Alvin told her to hurry up from the road, and John felt a bullet rip through his right (gasps) shoulder. It knocked the breath out of him and made him fall forward. He laid right there. Oh, my God. He laid right there for a while until he could slowly stagger back onto his feet. And then he kind of walked down the highway or whatever. Several cars passed him, and he decided he was going to make the next person stop. He didn't care what it was going to take. He was going to walk into the middle of the road, and he was either going to get hit, or they were going to stop. Could you imagine driving down the road in the middle of the night, and this whole-ass man just walks out in front of you, and you could tell that he's hurt by the way he's walking, and you're thinking, what the actual fuck? See, that's what puts me in predicaments, because in the 80s, before cell phones, at this time, I probably would have stopped because he was bloody. I'm that idiot. But this is a guy that actually needed help. Yeah. So in this case, I would have been doing the right thing. But if that were to happen today, my ass going to pass you by and I'm going to call the cops for you. Because, look, there, there are some people that set that shit up. 
they will make it look like this or that, so you will stop and help them. A baby on the side of the road or yeah. something. It, it's ridiculous. You cannot be a good person anymore. It's hard. So John did end up getting picked up. He did get to the hospital. So we're we're going. I didn't really get. I'm, there's not a whole lot to that. I mean, he's good. The next day we're going to get into that. Okay. But for now we got to focus on Janice, right? Yeah. Janice is still in the car, right? Judith and Alvin took Janice back to their motel room, and they tortured her, they raped her, mm. and Judith shot her. It just caused Janice to scream, which caused Judith to worry about someone hearing her. So she shot her two more times, which killed her. They dropped off Janice's body off a back road in rural Chattooga County, Georgia. I think that's it, Chattooga. It's not Chattanooga, but it's close. Chattanooga's cousin. Yeah. <laughs> so, by by this time, with the dumb calls, the volume of crimes in such a short span, and John Hancock surviving and being able to identify the people that shot him, the cops are finally starting to put some things together. They play a tape for John of one of the calls that they had recorded. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, as soon as he heard that, he was like, yeah, that that's the same voice of the lady that shot me. And he couldn't just identify her voice, though. He kind of knew what she looked like. He kind of knew what Alvin looked like. They also now knew what kind of cars they had. Yeah. Yeah, because he's been riding around with both of them. Yep. So they start to put two and two together with the mannerisms of the way that Judith talked on the phone. And since the original focus was on the YDC staff, it must have been someone that had been there recently who had been released. So they compiled a list of all the girls that had been in the YDC Rome and were from out of state. Because the car tag was out of state. state. After gathering a list and interviewing both Linda Adair and Ken Dooley, they actually narrowed that list down to five names that it could have been. Sarah Klimper, Dora Madsen, Judith Ann Neely, Sue McKillen, or Nell Pitts. So, the detective, Kynes, actually interviewed all of the girls on that list. Except for one. Judith. Couldn't find Judith. Surprising. Yeah. So after not being able to find her, the GBI, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, they were contacted to locate her and they knew that she would be with Alvin. So a GBI agent, Jim Carver, got an aggravated assault warrant for Alvin and Judith for the shooting of John. He headed up to Cleveland, Tennessee, where Alvin's parents lived, hoping that they were going to be able to locate him. But they searched the family property and came up empty-handed. Tennessee actually decided to help Jim, and they put out a bolo for Judith and Alvin, and they they told him that, hey, as soon as we find them, as soon as we get a hit, we'll contact you and let you know what's up. Okay. Alright, so, after these killings, Judith and Alvin actually headed up to Murfreesboro to live with Judith's mom for a short while, and to pass some of the forged money orders they had. I mean, it was kind of hot on them in the area, right? It's that dip. Murfreesboro, they, they aren't necessarily looking for you yet. Yeah. So it's a pretty good distance away from where it they is. were. It is. So they would still do the driving around bullshit and are you so-and-so, all that. Are you fearless? They would actually do this in the Jackson Heights area of Murfreesboro, which to this day, you know, is still not the best area. No, no, it's not. It's, uh... Sorry if you're from that area. I'm from, not from Murfreesboro, but I spent many years there. It's not an area that I would ever go to. I've been there. I'm not comfortable there. It's a lot of homeless and drug addicts. A lot of them seem to be chosen homeless, like they pick drugs over anything else. Mm -hmm. Drugs are extremely bad there. Theft is extremely bad there. You know that. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you walked into a convenience store right near the area that had just gotten robbed the, I didn't walk the day into before. It. A client's sister did. Yeah, but oh, they, yeah. they had just gotten robbed the day before. Yeah. yeah. So it's still a shady area. In this area, they ran into a young girl named Casey, and she told Judith 
that she was looking for somebody to ride around with. And of course, Judith was like, yeah, I'm looking for someone to ride around with too. You want to ride around with me? God, come on. Casey mentioned on the ride that she really enjoyed drugs. And Alvin, of course, over the CB, said, well, I can get some. If you'd like, you can meet me at a motel and I'll get you some drugs. Judith asked Casey if she wanted to meet him, and she said, Sure, I'm used to hanging around guys like that. I used to hang around truck stops. Sad. It is sad. That's about all I can say to that. October 9th, 1982, Detective David Gresham pulled up to a shady motel room and knocked on the door. The motel was on Nashville Highway right outside of Murfreesboro, and I'm pretty sure it's the Christmas Motel. Don't hold me to that. I cannot find where she was arrested at. If you look at Old Nashville Highway, that motel is right outside of Murfreesboro, and it is shady as hell. I've always known that. I've always thought it. Everyone knows it. In fact, when I was 18, my mom's going to kill me. She does not know this story yet, and she's probably about to hear it. Surprise! (laughs) Surprise, Mom. I was awful. So, at 18, I went out and I bought my first pack of cigarettes after I got off work at Subway. And I had about four four or five co-workers there that were about my age, maybe a little bit older. I know I had at least one there was like, uh, I think she was in her mid, mid to late 20s. She bought all of his alcohol. And we went over to the Chrisman Motel. And got the room on the corner, and I drank so many Smirnoff and Mike's Hard Lemonade that night that I remember that one lady's boyfriend or whatever smoking the black and mild wine cigars. Yes. I was so hungover the next day that I was out there throwing up, and every time to this day that I smell black and mild wine, I get nauseous. <laughs> so, don't worry, Mom, I already learned my own lesson. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't even drink that much anymore. No, you really don't. No, it's not fun for me. Uh, the hangovers. I, the older I get, the worse the hangovers get, and the more I'm like, mm, I don't even want a beer. No, I'm done. But anyways, that is a really shady motel. The fact that I could do that and get away with it that easy, mm-hmm. and this is in like 2008, 2009. It had to be 2008. Turned 18. Yeah. So, if I could get away with that in 2008, that's that's pretty bad. Now, if you go through and look at reviews, back in the 70s, I believe, there was a drowning in their pool. I did not know they had a pool, so maybe it closed down after that. They were trying to not accept responsibility for it. Uh-huh. I think it's different owners after that, but a lot of people talk about how rude the staff is there. They talk about how they just stare at you or don't have anything to do with you at all. It really is a motel. You can go get away with anything. I actually think it closed in 2019. (laughs) No, I'm serious. I looked it up because I was actually showing Tina pictures telling her about my 18th birthday and all that. Mm -hmm. And they had a fire over there. They said it was weird. Like a power line got hit. And it caused a fire, like the power line fell, and it caused a fire in two rooms, but they got it fixed. But I don't know if that's what shut it down. I don't know. It looks, it says temporary closed on Google, but I think they closed in 2019, so it's been a few years. They're still temporarily closed. Yeah, well, they might want to stay temporarily closed for a good time. So, when the knock came on the door, Judith opened the door, and the guy asked if she was Judith Ann Neely. She said, well, yeah, I am. He said, you're under arrest for passing bad checks. She stayed quiet. Super quiet. (laughs) He read her her Miranda rights, and then a few minutes later, Alvin actually pulled up to a shopping center in Murfreesboro. Casey got out of the car, waved to Alvin, and then Alvin drove off. That's the last you hear about Alvin for three days. Because three days later, this idiot pulled up to the Rutherford County Jail. And as soon as he got out to visit Judith in jail, as soon as he got out of the freaking car in the visitor lot, he was arrested for obviously (laughs) suspected involvement with the larcenies. Like, idiot. 
(laughs) (laughs) At this time, the cops didn't realize that they had something a whole hell of a lot worse than just some bad money orders, though. Yeah. So, that actually changed on the morning of October 14th, 1982, when Kynes found out that the Neelys were in custody in Murfreesboro. Kynes immediately got to the Rutherford County Jail around 6 p.m. that evening. He went straight on up there, and he started interviewing Alvin, letting him know that he was being charged with murder. And Alvin said, I know, but I didn't do it. Well, had I know, what? but I didn't do it. Man, he was being such a pussy, blaming everything on Judith and claiming that he was scared of her. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. Barbara Adams, Judith's mom, was actually having her property searched since Judith and Alvin had been living there for a minute. She met them at the door whenever they got there to search her residence, and she gave them no problem, stepped out of the way, gave them consent to search. She was like, oh, she like she wasn't even really surprised about it. She was just like, oh, hey, yeah, whatever, here, go. <laughs> Between the house and the two cars, they found handcuffs, 11 spent cartridges, six unspent cartridges, two boxes of shells, like shotgun shells, one of them, six shells were missing. The CB radios, $130.39 in cash. Three knives, two twenty-two caliber pistols, a 7mm Remington, a thirty thirty rifle, literature from Praise the Lord Club, <laughs> a stack of new car titles, and letters that he and Judith had actually written to each other during their incarceration. I remember you asking me in the last episode if it was what Judith said. Mm-hmm. This, I, I forgot at that time, but they did actually get their letters. They kept them. Okay. And they were confiscated. Okay. So it is actually written down. So there was a lot, lot more, but obviously I'm getting out of breath. There's, you know, the rest of it's pretty much bullshit. In Alvin's interrogation, he claimed that everything was all Judith's doing. He claimed she was out of control and was afraid that she might shoot him. He didn't know what she was going to do, and she was a dangerous person that told him things that she had done before, like firebombing a house in Rome. So you telling me that she told you she firebombed a house in Rome? Weren't you in the passenger seat? I was just about to say that he also kind of self-incriminated himself without even realizing. No, he's saying that she, she told, told him. him. Like he wasn't even there. You, you're you nothing but a big pussy. You're 11 years older than this girl and you're just throwing her under the bus. Yeah, that's love. So, during Judith's interrogation, she was asked if she was afraid of him. She answered not only that she was not afraid of him, but that he was the only person in the world that she ever trusted. She admitted to shooting into Kendulli's house, and that was for raping her. She admitted to the firebombing on Linda Adair's house, and that was for setting her up to be raped. It was also for stopping her from writing Alvin during their incarcerations. So she straight up was like, yeah, I did this, I did this, this is why. They were both extradited. Alvin was extradited to Rome, Georgia, and Judith to DeKalb County, Alabama. Judith admits to the murder of Lisa, claiming that she liked her and she didn't want to hurt her. At first, Judith admits to all the crimes, pretty much letting Alvin off the hook for him. Damn. But she changed her story several times, as did he. They both started to point the finger at each other, Judith claiming that Alvin made her pick up these girls for his sexual deviant pleasure. He claimed that she was the one to come up with the idea, and he actually never did anything with them. Which, that was quickly disproven by the discovery of semen in Lisa's body. Mm. So, it made him admit that he did rape her. Look how funny that is. Unfortunately, with this being across different states, the evidence against Alvin was pretty weak, so they weren't actually able to get him for Janice, but they were able to get him for Lisa. Now, Judith claims... That she was deathly afraid of Alvin, and she had to do what she had done because Alvin would have killed her. She had done everything under his direction. She claimed she was suffering vigorous abuse from him and constant sexual demands. Judith even claimed that she begged him to let Lisa go, but he refused. Which is why she gave her the shots to try to make it painless. 
This pretty much just becomes a bunch of bullshit of changing stories and pointing the finger at each other, showing that you're really not like Bonnie and Clyde. You're no ride or die. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to skip the boring, repetitive he said, she said, she did this, he did that. And I'm going to get on to the sentencing. Oh, I almost forgot. Did I mention she was pregnant when she got arrested? Again? I was going to say again? Yeah, again. She gave birth January 1983, behind bars, before her trial started. Damn. So, third kid, behind bars. First two were twins. Judith's defense attorney, Robert French Jr., voiced his protest about being appointed her defense. He reluctantly ended up doing it, but told his wife the evening after meeting Judith in person that she was a real thing, a cold-blooded killer, but that wouldn't stop him from doing the best he could to try for her to try to keep Georgia from giving her the electric chair. I mean, he's got a job to do. He's a defense attorney, so... I mean... Yeah. So, Judith tried a motion for the Youth Offenders Act, which would waive the right to a jury trial if if the offender is under the age of 21. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of why I was asking how you felt earlier. About her age, okay. Thankfully, it was denied because, which I say thankfully, because she had been committed, charged, convicted of several crimes. She has been living as an adult, Mm -hmm. and she is committing adult-like crimes. That's... They tra- uh, they That's how treated I treated her like an adult. I do agree with that. I, I see where you're coming from. I'm not going to disagree to that. So, two of the people that Judith had actually attempted to pick up testified against her at the trial, including the person that gave the GBI a definite identification on Judith in the photo lineup, which was Debbie Smith. So, hell yeah, Debbie Smith. Thank you for that. Yeah. And let me just tell you, I haven't been on, like, a trial like this or anything by any means. I haven't, luckily, I haven't had to have something like this in my life. But I have been to court as a child, and it is not fun. It is intimidating. It is stressful. You don't know what's going to happen. Have you ever had to testify before? Yeah. yeah. It's it's awful. It's awful. It is awful. And then to make these families relive this shit, mm-hmm. that's awful. So after a trial that started March 7th, the jury actually reached a verdict the morning after they started deliberating about it and found her guilty of kidnapping and murder on March 22, 1983. The sentence hearing that only started a few hours later the same day was determined by a vote of 10 to 2 that she would spend the rest of her life in prison versus being put to death. <laughs> so two people said she wa- she needs death. Ten people said she needs to spend life in prison. Okay. So, see, there's this thing about Alabama. The jury recommendation in a capital case, such as murder, is not the final word. It's the judges, isn't it? It's the judge. So, after the sentence hearing, April 18th, 1983, she was sentenced to die in Alabama's electric chair. The judge said, yeah, I know that they said this, but she deserves death. She is an awful person. She's going to die. Judith was only 18 years old at this time. She has three kids. They were all three born behind bars. She and her husband are just so quick to point their fingers at each other. What does she really have going for her? You remember I was talking about this was the spiral down? Like, she just kept spiraling after meeting Alvin? Yeah. Well, she's going to go down in history as the youngest woman at the time to be sentenced to death in the U.S. I guess there's that. It's not something I would be proud of. I, I I don't have anything to say. Alvin was actually afraid that Judith would testify against him to help herself out. Mm-hmm. Obviously, because they ain't ride or die for each other. Yeah. So he took a plea deal pleading guilty to kidnapping with bodily harm and intent to murder. And he got sentenced to two life terms. He was incarcerated at Bostick State Prison in Baldwin County, Georgia, until his death while undergoing surgery October 21st, 2005. So we're done talking about him. He died during surgery. I'm not sure exactly what the surgery was. Obviously, you know, with HIPAA and stuff, it would have to be a family member to say something. Bye, Felicia. A family member is actually the reason we know he died during a surgery. So thank you for putting that info out there. Let us know what it was. 
I'm just curious. <laughs> but yeah, bye, Felicia. You're gone. When Judith was actually asked about how she felt about his death, she said she was sad. <laughs> yeah. So Judith went to Tutwiler Prison for Women in Wetumpka, Alabama. That's a mouthful. It is. It's a maximum security prison just right outside of Montgomery, not too far from Montgomery. Oh, okay. She appealed for a new trial, but it was denied March 1987. In 1989, the Supreme Court affirmed her death sentence. For some reason, remember I said there's more coming? Mm-hmm. For some reason, just days away from her execution date, January 15, 1999, Governor Fob James of Alabama commuted her sentence to life in prison with a possibility of parole in another 15 years, which is only a minimum of 31 years in prison. He signed the order before he left office January 18th, 1999. So you you commuted this bitch's sentence three days before you left office? Okay, let's talk about Mr. Forrest Hood Fob James Jr. for a second. Forrest? Forrest. This dude decided to bring back the chain gang. Oh. The inmate population for blacks in Alabama was already grossly disproportionate, which it still is. And the discrimination within the criminal justice system really helped play a part in that, which, again, they still do. These chain gangs were mostly black people, and they were put on display working on these chains while white tourists could just walk by and see them. They were pretty much bringing back Jim Crow vibes to Alabama. However, the chain gang was canned in 1996 because of a lawsuit from a human rights group. So, mm-hmm. hell yeah. I don't think it was HRC, but that, that's why we have things like the HRC. We, we can't be treated like this. We are all people. During this guy's second term, he firmly supported the death penalty. He presided over seven executions by electric chair. Why in the fuck would you commute Judah's sentence if you've been to seven executions and you firmly support the death penalty? Sounds like some petty shit that he just chose to do right before he was about to leave. Well, supposedly, he said that in Neely's case, it wasn't fair. It was the only time he had seen a judge overrule the jury's unanimous decision to impose life imprisonment by issuing a death penalty. Um, it wasn't unanimous. It was 10 to 2. That That's one. Yeah. For yeah. two, for two, you can look this up. It's documented. Alabama has a few judges that actually have a reputation on imposing the death penalty against the jury's votes. This is an ongoing thing with many people. So, a lot of stuff has been said that he did it just because he heard she was a born-again Christian or something. Okay, you gonna go pardon Charles Manson before he dies? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, granted, you can't now, but... Before he died, you know, this was back in 99. You gonna go... No, you're not. Why are you gonna kill these other seven? I'm sure they were born-again Christians, too. Uh, at least one of them was, I guarantee it. Yeah, for sure. So, I kind of think he had a thing... That was a little different for women. Because remember the chain gang? Mm-hmm. It was actually brought up to him that they wanted to include women on the chain gang. Let me guess he said no. He was appalled at that idea. So... We can put people of color. Yeah, or men. Or men. But we can't put women out there. Why? Why do you not want to put women out there? What... What is it that, what, you think you're going to get lucky? No. That's not the worst part of it, though. When he commuted the sentence, he claims that he assumed that there would be no chance of parole. Mm -hmm. But remember what I said. Mm -hmm. It actually didn't specify if she would be eligible for parole or not. So the law was actually changed in 2003 specifically to block her from the possibility of parole. Damn. But... It was found unconstitutional later by a federal judge. Really? So, now she has a chance for parole. <laughs> she is actually the only death row inmate in modern Alabama history 
to be granted that commutation. That That is insane. Yeah, so you ready for the real fun part? No, but you're going to tell me anyway. She was up for parole May 2018, which I believe she was denied in, like, less than a minute. Okay. Yeah. And then just just not too long ago, May 25th, 2023, she was up for parole again. This year. This year. And she was again denied within just, like, three minutes. Okay. The problem is, she could get out. Yeah. Why does she get that chance? Lisa doesn't have a chance to live her life. Janice doesn't have a chance to live her life. Alvin has said that there was 8 to 15 women they killed. That's what he's admitted to in his interviews, which I don't have all that because this is already a little longer than I want to be. We're still a little hot in here with no air. But then you also have to imagine if he's over-exaggerating or if it really is that amount, a number, or, you know, amount. Who's gonna know? For one, he's dead. For two, all they were doing was blaming each other. Uh, You're not gonna find the truth unless you find the bits and pieces and piece them together. Yeah. And then you're not gonna get the whole truth. But I do want to say... The current governor of Alabama, Kay Ivey, for those of you who live in Alabama, Mimo Ivey, she actually sent a letter to the Alabama Board of Pardons and Paroles strongly opposing Judith's parole. Okay, Mimo. I, I will put the letter on Facebook, but I'm just going to read you a part of it that I have here. Please do not grant parole to Judith Ann Neely. Five years ago, I made the same request of this board and your predecessors unanimously denied parole after less than one minute of deliberation. Although each of you has joined the board since Miss Nelly's last parole hearing, nothing has changed since then that would support a different result today. Quite simply, Miss Nelly should not be allowed to set foot outside of an Alabama prison. I believe it was a mistake for Governor James to commute Miss Nelly's death sentence in the first place, and certainly to do so in a way that allows Miss Nelly the possibility of parole now, every five years, the wounds of these families are reopened that they wait with bated breath for your decision. That's, that's very, what I'm talking about. That's very well spoken. Yes. So, thank you, Mima Ivy, for being very supportive in that. I'm really glad, and I wish there was more you can do, and I know you do too, but unfortunately, that's why we have these checks and balances. Right. <sighs> There is a survivor of a victim out there, and I want to say that it's Janice Chapman's daughter. Every five years now, these wounds are going to be opened up. John Hancock has to go through this every five years. Mm -hmm. These families that have lost their loved ones have to go through this every five years. No one should have to go through this, especially every five years, for someone who is so blatantly evil. I agree. But, you know, I told you she got that going down in history as the youngest female. Yeah. Well, she's actually also currently the second longest serving female death row inmate in the country. Damn. So, uh, good job, Judith. You made a name for yourself. I wouldn't be fucking proud of it. Congratulations. Not really. <laughs> I mean, I'm, as much as I hate to say it, I, I hate the loss. I know Alvin's got other kids out there, and and they are vocal about this stuff. And people actually attack his kids, including the I twins. It. I believe it. The, her kids really catch shit, and that's not fair. You don't make your parents' decisions. Mm-hmm. You either grow into that or grow away from that. And the twins ended up in foster care. They grew up very loved. They They just want to move on in life. In fact, I think they're both married now and stuff. But leave them alone. Like, they did not make their mother's decision. Right. And another thing, when Alvin died, it hurt one of the kids. Obviously, it's their dad. Yeah. Just because he's an awful person doesn't mean he's not still loved. Judith is still loved. Whether anyone wants to go see her or anything, she's still loved. Yeah. Keep that in mind, too. Like, no, she should not get out. No, she should never get a chance to get out. Maybe she should be put to death. I don't know 100% how I feel about the death penalty. I know I say it, but at the same time, I really don't 
feel like anyone should kill anyone. I was gonna say that I. So I'm really torn on that. I, I, so am I. It's still bullshit that they gotta be put through this. That, that's what I'm taking from it. So, this happened in 2023. In five years, 2028, she'll be up for parole again, I believe, in May. Make sure you write Alabama and you tell them, do not let this lady out. She is pure evil, and she is not going to change. Stop putting the survivors of the victims through this. That's about all I got. All around the areas that I've been. That was intense. It was. That's why I had to break it up into two. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And it, it really shows the spiral that can hit you so suddenly mm-hmm. and change your whole life. Like, you've got to be strong every day. You've got to make the right choices every day. Even if you make bad choices, fix it. Don't keep going down that path. And that's Shelby's TED Talk, everybody. Yeah, I go through those a lot, don't I? <laughs> It's hot. You ready to cut this air back on? Yes. Alright. Bye, guys. See ya. All research is done by Shelby Hudgens, Courtney Pilant, and Tina Collins. A special thanks to Tina Collins for managing us, and we are a lot to manage. All social media is linked in the description below. Be sure to follow us, and don't forget to leave a rating on wherever you get your podcasts. If you have an interesting topic that you'd like to hear on our podcast, please email it to allthingsmacabre.pod at gmail.com. That's M-A-C-A-B-R-E. Did this episode make you say, What the fuck?